Good morning. I'm not Krista. <laughs> I know. I'm, she's better looking than I am. I am Krista's dad. And she asked me if I would read the passages she's going to be preaching from this morning. It's out of Matthew chapter 11, verses 9, uh, 1 through 19, New International Version. And just to give you a little bit of context for this, uh, Jesus is in Galilee and he's preaching and he has just recently sent out his disciples to uh, do ministry and to proclaim the kingdom of God. <clears throat> As he's there, he gets word that his cousin, John the Baptist, has been arrested by Herod and thrown in prison because Herod, I mean, because John the Baptist accused Herod of, of marrying his cousin or his I think it was his brother's wife, which was technically, in Jewish custom, incest. And so John the Baptist confronted Herod about that, and Herod was uh, not happy about that and threw John in prison. So the context for this is that John has just been thrown in prison, and his disciples have come to Jesus, say, what do we do now? So I'm reading from Matthew chapter 11, starting at verse 1. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, Jesus, he sent his disciples, his disciples, to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else, referring to, is he the Messiah? And Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is everyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. And what did you go out in the wilderness to see when you went out to see John? A reed swayed in the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are kings and in palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, he was more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written in Isaiah, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before me. Before, truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subject, subjected to violence. And violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. So what, to what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others, we played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds.
I don't know if you can tell, but he's a, he's a preacher himself. <laughs> Good morning. Um, so the passage that we read today was Matthew 11, 1 through 19. I'm going to focus specifically today on verses 1 through 6. But before we dive into the text this morning, I just want to take a moment to say how grateful I am for all of you, for this community. My mom, Nancy, my daughter, Adia, and I started attending services here a year ago in May. And it was a time when my daughter, Adia, and I were going through a difficult transition and really needed a community of support and a church to call home. I haven't had the chance to talk with or get to know all of you in this room, but for those of you who I have had the opportunity to spend time with, it's been such a gift to me. And you all have truly enriched uh, my life, my daughter's life. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Some of you may know by now that I'm a hospice chaplain and heard me teach back in January on the topic of grief. I just want to assure you today that we will not be talking about grief. <laughs> so you can all relax, take a deep breath. Instead, today we're going to talk about suffering and pain. <laughs> so much lighter. Um, I went to pick up my five-year-old daughter, Adia, from school on Thursday, and when she came up to the car with her teacher, I noticed that she was crying, which is unusual. Usually she comes very excited. So as, I, uh, as she came up to the car, she held her finger up to me, and her teacher explained that she'd gotten what looked like a scratch or a splinter on her index finger. So of course, I comforted her, I told her I was sorry, I... I kissed her boo-boo, which always makes it feel better. I gave her a tissue to wipe her eyes. I washed her boo-boo in her hands, and then I gave her a snack and helped her get in the car. So as we drove off, I could tell she was beginning to feel better uh, because she was happily recounting her day, including who she played with and who chased who, which is the theme of the day at the moment. Um, then about five minutes down the road, she said, Mommy... Why do boo-boos hurt? Why do they have to happen? And why are they a real thing? <laughs> of course, I was like, wow, how did that just come out of my five-year-old's mouth? And I responded, those are really good questions, Adia. And then she follows up with, I wish God didn't make boo-boos. Well, he can make boo-boos. It's not that he can't make them. But why does he make them hurt? Again, Another excellent question out of the mouths of babes. I began to wonder, where did she get this idea that God makes boo-boos or makes them hurt? Because I don't remember teaching her that, nor do I know exactly where I personally stand on that. But what I realized is that no matter where you believe boo-boos or pain or suffering originate from, even at five years old, my daughter is able to recognize that something outside of herself, something outside of her control is happening to her that she does not like and did not choose and wants to know why. She's articulating what I think all of us have felt or have asked at one point or another. Why does life include so much pain and suffering? So there's no great all-encompassing answer to that question because 
truthfully, it's a very personal question. And even though I think it's normal and natural to ask this question, and that sometimes it can be comforting to seek meaning in our own suffering, it can be harmful to try to apply those meanings to all suffering everywhere for all people at all times. Sometimes, as Kate Bowler talks about often in her podcast, Everything Happens, for those of you who have heard of her, sometimes suffering is just suffering. And trying to find meaning in it is unhelpful at best and at worst adds to the suffering. I think the question for me lately has not been so much why do we suffer or why do I suffer. Though at points in my life and in my not too distant past, I've certainly asked that question and wrestled with it. But instead, my question lately has been what do we do with our suffering? What do we do with our pain? I think often in our pain and suffering, we look and hope for a savior. Anyone or anything that can save us and rescue us from the pain that we're experiencing. Who or what do you hope will save you from your pain? John the Baptist, along with the nation of Israel, was also looking for a savior, a Messiah. Someone who, like a mighty warrior king, would save them from the oppression of their enemies, and specifically, at that time, the rule of the Roman Empire. Someone who would restore their land back to them and all that had been taken from them. Someone who would usher them into a new age of freedom, prosperity, and peace. When John the Baptist baptizes Jesus at the Jordan, it appears that he recognizes Jesus to be this Messiah, the one he has been preparing the way for, the one anointed by God to save Israel. And as we read today in the text in Matthew 11, John ends up in prison. And it's from this place that he begins to question if Jesus truly is the Messiah. Is it not true that in our pain and in our suffering, in the prisons we find ourselves in, whether they are physical or mental, that we begin to question the things that we used to know or believe with certainty? This can be especially true when our suffering or pain is unjust, as was in the case of John's arrest and imprisonment. So as my dad talked about earlier, to give some context, John was arrested by Herod, a tetrarch who ruled over Galilee as a Roman client state. Some scholars believe Herod arrested John on account of his public criticism of Herod's new marriage. Others believe that Herod was more concerned about the potential for a rebellion and had arrested John because he was highly influential among the Jews and could influence the Jews against him. Either way, John's life was now at the mercy and the whim of people who were in power over him. Many scholars believe John the Baptist was imprisoned underground, which would make his prison dark and dank. And they speculate he was in prison anywhere from six months to two years. Can you imagine being in the dark 
both literally and figuratively for that long, not knowing for how long you would be there, isolated, if you would ever be freed, or if you would eventually be killed. I don't know, personally, yet, what it's like to be in a physical prison, but I know what it's like to be in a mental one. I can imagine that all of you here today have experienced at some point what it's like to be in a mental prison, to feel stuck, to feel trapped, to feel helpless, to feel disoriented, to feel alone, to begin to question our reality, to suffer alone in silence, not knowing for how long, or if you'll ever be freed from the pain that you're in. I believe John's questioning of Jesus comes from a place of deep pain and suffering. Perhaps feeling a greater sense of urgency for Jesus to reveal himself as Messiah, to overthrow the Roman Empire, let's get the show on the road, or at the very least offer assurance that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. Because if Jesus was not the Messiah, then who was John? His whole life purpose had been about preparing the way for the Messiah. So what would his legacy be if he were to die in prison and Jesus was not the Messiah after all? John, needing answers, sends his disciples directly to Jesus to ask him, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? I think John's needing reassurance in that question. And Jesus responds to John's question not with criticism, not with defensiveness, not with anger, but with compassion. Instead, he says, go back to John and tell him what you've heard and seen, the blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And then he added, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. In true Jesus-like fashion, he does not answer the question directly with a yes or a no, but instead begins to quote several Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, namely Isaiah 61, 1, Isaiah 35, 4 through 6, Ezekiel 37, 12 to 14. Jesus essentially answers John's question by pointing John, uh, by reminding him of the evidence that he was in fact the Messiah and pointing John to the miracles and works that he was performing that fulfilled these messianic prophecies. Perhaps John just needed a gentle reminder. Like, hey, John, remember those prophecies over here that you read about? Oh, yeah, right, I remember those. Of course, that makes sense now. I can't believe I overlooked those. Um, more likely, I think John needed to be reminded to shift his focus, to change the lens that he was looking through. 
And Jesus was highlighting the prophecies and the miracles that John had perhaps been paying less attention to or placed less importance on. In what ways might we also miss the presence and saving work of God among us because God is not performing the kind of miracles we are looking for or that we have placed more importance on? I think it's worth noting not only what Jesus says here, but what he doesn't say. Pastor John pointed this out uh, when I was discussing this text with him a few weeks ago. He said that Jesus leaves out, your God will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, uh, from Isaiah 35. And then from Isaiah 61, he leaves out that the Messiah will proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. I find that interesting, considering John's predicament. Why do you think that Jesus does that? I wonder if Jesus is not only inviting John to consider shifting his expectation of what the Messiah was coming to do for the nation of Israel, but also inviting John to trust that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, even if John himself doesn't get to experience the miracle that he might have been hoping for in his own personal life. John was in a physical prison, but he was also in a mental prison. In order for John to be able to embrace the new beginning, the new age that Jesus was ushering in, he would need to let go of the old way of thinking. You can't put new wine in old wineskins. You have to use new wineskins. So what makes this challenging to do? Perhaps we feel we can't live without our old wineskins, our old beliefs, because they are attached to our sense of identity, our purpose in life. And we don't, if we don't have that, then what do we have? Perhaps there is grief in letting go. I know, had to fit it in. (laughs) Grief that we may not be ready to feel or face. It involves pain and suffering. And I don't know about you, but I'm not a fan of pain and suffering. Or perhaps we aren't safe enough to let go. We don't have the resources yet to be able to do that. We may just not be ready. And that's okay. We don't get to find out in the text what John's response is to Jesus' answer. But I think there's a reason that Jesus adds, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. Some translations say those who don't take offense or those who do not turn away because of me. I can imagine that for John, this could feel quite personal. Here's Jesus, who's literally family. He's his cousin. And he's performing all these miracles. So he definitely has the power and ability to free John from prison. And yet, he seems to be saying to John, I may not do that for you. I believe that Jesus' invitation to John in this moment is don't give up hope. 
Trust that God is still present and at work, that the story of God's work in the world is still unfolding. To be encouraged by the miracles, the healing, the moments when justice prevails and those who are isolated or oppressed are restored back into community and freed from their oppression. Reminders that though we still face pain and suffering, injustice, and eventually death in this world, though the miracles we, we may be hoping for may not come to pass in the way that we hope they would, miracles are still happening. And there are more miracles to come, ones even far greater than we can imagine or hope for. John is not released from prison, as some of you might know. And as Pastor John will preach or teach about next week, eventually he is beheaded, and his head is served on a platter. John the Baptist, who Jesus calls the greatest man born of a woman, who was known for prayer and fasting, is not spared from suffering, from pain, from injustice, and even from an undignified death. Yet Jesus is not asking John to do anything he himself is not willing to do. For Jesus also suffers and dies an undignified and unjustified death. I think it's worth noting that even Jesus, who was fully God but also fully human, hopes and prays in the garden for a miracle so that he might not have to suffer. It's human to suffer, and it's human not to want to suffer, as my five-year-old daughter recognizes so clearly. So what do we do with the existence of pain and suffering in this world and in our own lives? What do we do when we're faced with deferred hope, unmet expectations, unanswered prayers, and unfulfilled dreams? What do we do when, these, when there are miracles happening all around us, but we can't recognize them? Um, as Nick said earlier in the prayer, we can't see the goodness of God around us. We can't feel encouraged by those miracles because we don't see them happening in our own life, at least not in the way we hoped they would. So I'm going to attempt to offer an answer, one that is resonating with me right now in this season of my life. And I'm going to do that by sharing two brief stories, two miracles, rather, that happened in my own life this past week. All right, the first one's called Fire Story, just to give you a heads up. On the night of the 4th of July, I went to bed around 11.30, and then I woke up just after midnight to this loud, crackling sound. I looked to see where it was coming from, and it seemed to be coming from outside my bedroom window. I also noticed this bright orange light shining through my window. So I opened the shade, and you guys... My neighbor's fence and back porch patio cover, less than 15 feet from my house, 
was completely up in flames. This was not a small fire. I was not going to be able to toss a bucket on this fire. <laughs> in fact, it looked like this fire was about to take my neighbor's house. So I jumped out of bed. I called 911. I raced over to my neighbor's house. No one was outside. So I began frantically knocking on their door, ringing the doorbell, and no one was answering. I saw a car in the driveway, so I knew potentially someone was home. Um, so after I hung up with 911, I ran back inside to get more fully dressed because I had just kind of jumped out of bed. <laughs> then I came back outside, and by that time, my neighbor um, and her daughter, who's under two, were out front, and they were on the phone with 911. So I told her I'd already called 911, and she thanked me. She said that it was my knocking and ringing the doorbell that had woken her up. She had not answered right away because her husband was working and wasn't home. And she was scared that someone was knocking at her door at, you know, 1230 in the middle of the night. Um, but thankfully, she eventually had gotten up to look around and she saw the fire, grabbed her daughter and ran out. The police and firemen showed up in less than five minutes and were able to put the fire out before any damage was done to the inside of the home. There was no smoke that had gotten into the inside of the home. This is one of those moments in life that you don't forget. The situation could have gone so many different ways. But for some reason, a miracle had taken place. And I had been invited to respond and participate in that miracle. When I'm trying to answer for myself the question of what I do with pain and with suffering, I think one of the answers that comes up for me as I reflect on this passage and on this experience is that the invitation, that there is an invitation to be co-laborers with God in creating miracles, both in the lives of, our, of others, of those around us, but also in our own. And that while we rely on God, on Jesus, ultimately as our Savior, as the one who will save us, there is a role that we can also play to trust, to respond, and to act in love towards our neighbors, to allow our kindness to overcome our fear. The next story is called The Butterfly Story. The second miracle for me took place this past Saturday. Adia and I went swimming at a neighbor's house. They'd invited us to use um, their pool while they were out of town. So it was just the two of us. It was a beautiful day, perfect, really. Not too hot, not too cold. Even the water was warm. It had been a long day with just me and my daughter. We had ups and downs. So this was just like a nice, relaxing moment. And I. I found myself in this moment holding two feelings, one of pure joy, enjoying the warmth of the sun, the water on my skin, enjoying being with my daughter, having a moment with her where we could just relax and have fun that didn't feel stressful. And at the same time, I was feeling this old familiar ache creep in, this feeling of loneliness, 
um, grief that I haven't been able to resolve or shake that seemed to color every moment of joy. And then I noticed as we were swimming a butterfly that seemed to be just hovering around us, almost like it was trying to get our attention. I thought it was trying to land on the water, but I thought that's not a good idea, but I plan to do that. <laughs> I pointed it out to Adia, and we watched it for a while. Eventually, it landed on the ground near the edge of the pool. I told Adia to be very quiet as we slowly swam towards the butterfly so that we could look at it and admire it. I'm someone who likes to go towards bugs. I know not everybody does that, but I, I do like to go towards bugs. So then I told her to hold her finger up to the butterfly to see if it would land on it. I'm not sure why I did this, because I don't actually, I didn't actually believe I, in the moment that a butterfly, that the butterfly would land on our finger. I mean, it's never happened to me before. And as much as I would love that, since I'd you know, been a little girl, um, I just didn't think it would happen. You guys know what happened? <laughs> Do you know that this butterfly flew up and landed on my daughter's finger? And not only did it land on her finger, but it lingered. It kissed her. She said it was licking her. And then I put my finger up to her finger, and it went on to my finger. And then it flew off, and then it came back, and it landed on her finger again. I know. <laughs> it did this like two or three more times. It was as if this butterfly was just like hanging out with us, you know? And then all of a sudden, just as quickly as it came, it flew away. This all happened within a span of like five minutes. Now, this was a big deal to Adia, of course. She was super excited that a butterfly had landed on her finger, right? But you guys, she has no idea. This does not happen. <laughs> she doesn't know, you guys don't know what that moment meant to me. I've been waiting 38 years. <laughs> for a butterfly to land on my finger. It may not have been that big a deal to everyone listening here today for a butterfly to land on your finger, but to me it felt like a mini miracle and it felt personal. The beauty and wonder of that moment acted as a salve to the pain and suffering that I was also carrying in that moment. It wasn't going to go away. But it freed me, even if temporarily, from that mental prison that I found myself in. And it offered the promise that there are more miracles to come, even if they may not be the one I'm hoping for, even if it may not be a miracle that takes away the pain I'm feeling. I was reminded in that moment that beauty and pain coexist simultaneously in this world. In the coming week, I want to extend an invitation to all of us to be open to the possibility of miracles happening in and around your life, of freedom from the mental prison that you might find yourself in.
For some of you listening today, perhaps there are miracles happening in your life and around your life, but you have yet to recognize them because you're expecting or hoping for a different kind of miracle. This is an invitation to consider that perhaps it's time for a new wineskin to let go of the old one. For others of you listening, perhaps this can be an invitation to respond with action to the opportunities that are presented to you to participate in a miracle in someone else's life or even in your own. And perhaps for others, there's an invitation to slow down, to pay attention, so that you might notice the possibility of a miracle right in front of you, to extend your finger in hope that a miracle could happen or might happen, even if you don't fully believe it will. And for others of you, you might be in too much pain to recognize the miracles around you or even to extend your finger in hope. Perhaps you've experienced a trauma or you are in the midst of profound grief and the only miracle you want right now is the one that's going to take away your pain and your suffering. I know this kind of pain. I know what it's like for the pain to color my ability to enjoy or notice the miracles that are happening right in front of me. And I believe this is where John may have been as well. And like John, we can go to others or to God directly to ask for help, for reassurance, for eyes to see what we cannot see for a new perspective. But even that might be too difficult to do, especially if your pain has isolated you or affects your ability or desire to pray or causes you to begin to question who you're praying to. I believe Jesus' message to us when we are in that space or that season of life is don't give up. Be open to something shifting, something changing. It's true that the miracle may not come in the form or the package that you expected. But trust that you're in this for the long game and that the healing and the freedom that you're longing for does not happen quickly or overnight that you may not be able to see the miracle right now, but that doesn't mean it's not already taking place. And that there is a miracle to come that will be far greater than you can ever imagine. So I'm going to invite us to come to the table today, expecting that God is present with us, among us, inviting us to look for and receive encouragement from the miracles that are happening all around us and reminding us that we are already free. <laughs>